You're listening to the Signal to Noise podcast on the ProSound Web Podcast Network. Signal to Noise is proudly supported by Audix. Check out the new TM2 integrated acoustic coupler for in-ear monitors and their new line of studio headphones and condenser mics at audixusa.com. Alan and Heath has asked us to read the following statement. Warning, if you are listening to today's episode and you think to yourself, if I had a nickel for every time Kyle said something really strange, I'd be rich. You're not alone. Also, if you had a nickel for every time you received a nickel, you'd have an infinite amount of nickels. So there's that. Welcome back to the Signal to Noise podcast on Pro Sound Web. Uh, Kyle, man, you're taking all the hits from Alan and Heath there. I know. Brutal. We're counting nickels today, so um, we're going to have a, a stupid count. Is, is that <laughs> because that's we all logged the- in, I spelt my name wrong and Brad uh, pointed it out. <laughs> are, are we counting nickels because they spent all their money on Kyle's uh, house in the Bahamas? Oh, I, I just, thought you said nipples. Jeez. <laughs> oh. Uh, no. How was your week, Kyle? Uh, <laughs> right back to me. Um, here we go. Here's another 10 cents for you. Um, not bad. It's been good. Um, put out some feelers here in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, took down Christmas decorations. Worked on myself a little bit. Been to the gym like four or five times. Getting pretty huge. Not doing keto like Chris. But uh, yeah, man. Uh, moving forward. Looking forward to uh, this new year. I know we got some uh, NAM stuff coming up, possibly. I don't know. I've been seeing some emails. I did read them. I just didn't respond, and I only respond when Jeff said something really strange. Well, that's the step in the right direction if you're reading them, then. Uh, so baby steps. Uh, and I, I also want to say, uh, again, big thanks to Wes for coming on the show and talking about the mentorship program, because yeah. uh, we got, uh, we've got some more interest in the program. I got an email today. We got an email through our fancy web form at signaltonoisepodcast.com. Uh, someone reached out and is interested in getting involved with the mentorship program. So again, we definitely want to thank everybody for their interest in that. And we want to encourage people, if uh, you want to get involved, hit us up. We'll take care of it. Yeah, I got I got a mentee now. You do? Yes, uh, Sam Sa- Sam Zuckerman. No kidding. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Sam's a good friend of mine. I like Sam a lot. Yeah. Why do you that's, that's excellent. He, he picked some. He picked Chris. The kid's going to actually learn something. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Chris, who's our, who's our guest this week? Uh, Kyle Churnside, formerly uh front house. Oh, wait, no. Um, <laughs> uh, do you get the nickel? Do I? Cause you did that. Ah, uh, it goes uh, into a jar. It's like a swear jar. We have a, a little known secret, um, uh, engineer. He's, you know, um, you know, he stays in the shadows. Um, you, you may have heard of him. Uh, his name is, uh, Brad Maddox. He's a uh, award-winning Grammy nominated live and broadcast recording engineer, uh, with artists like Florence and the Machine, Rush, Linkin Park, Jack White, uh, Marilyn Manson, Journey, Van Halen. Uh, I'd have to, if I had a nickel for every artist, actually, that's on this list. <laughs> anyway, welcome. Welcome, Brad. Yay. You'd have about a dollar. <laughs> not getting too excited. Brad, I, I read your, your I read that uh, the list that, Chris just sort of read a couple of names off of. I read it to my girlfriend. She said, who's going to be on the show this week? And she said, wow, that's quite a range of artists. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I'd like to start there. I mean, you, you really are not 
pigeonholed in the genre that you're mixing you've done i mean you go from rage against the machine to like shakira i mean that's it's quite a shift i mean how's your experience been bouncing between all these different genres well um i mean to me i just it's a matter of listening to the records and and getting wrapping your head around the musical style i i'm a musician myself and i played in cover bands for a long time and we played a lot of everything so I've already I've already ha- had a pretty wide musical appreciation. You know, I like all this stuff, most of it anyway. I like it, and uh, so it's just kind of making an analysis of what the what the musician is trying to do, what the band's trying to do, what the artist is trying to do, and uh, making that happen. And so it's not about me. It's just like being in a cover band and playing. You know, hell, I was singing Van Halen in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> Not very well, but. but. <laughs> which which iteration did you mix? Did you mix uh, David Lee or Sammy? Again, uh, um, when David got back with them, uh, so it was da- it was David Lee Roth, um, which was interesting. There's a lot of stories there. Uh, we have time. Yeah, <laughs> but so but not the old not the old David Lee Roth version. It was the you know. 2012 David Lee Roth version. And shout out to our uh, good friend of the show, Jimmy Akabuski. He, uh, yeah. he talks a lot about the Van Halen. That's he always talks about how that was his favorite gig and one of the, you know, his favorite things to look back on in his career. So I get the uh, impression that it was uh, probably quite an experience working with them. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to be with them at a time where Eddie was like at his prime, like really, really, good he'd uh he'd had some rough times i i gather from what i've heard and uh but he was like he was sober and playing really really well i mean was, that was a that was the probably the most fun part of that for me in it, mixing eddie van halen playing all that stuff for four or five shows a week from when you when you look back on this go ahead kyle i'm sorry just from looking at your artist roster i mean you did jump around styles a whole bunch he didn't even mention two of my favorites suicidal tendencies and slayer did did bruce hornsby (laughs) and bruce hornsby i already made one bruce hornsby comment today on the the group text so just to be clear i mixed monitors for slayer which not that it was easy exactly sounds rough um well you know funny enough they were really agreeable guys i mean it wasn't like hard hard technically it was just loud as all well that that's what i meant rough in terms of spl yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. i had earplugs in they are some of the sweetest dudes though they They were super super nice it's really funny the the sort of general perception of them in in the public and the reality of who they are it's wow i mean they really really were really nice guys it's called a show. Yes, it is a show. <laughs> Did they do the raining blood thing where it, it rained on blood on stage when you mixed them? It was not actually blood raining on the stage, no. But that uh, was, it might have been that tour. It, it was around that time. Yeah. And- wild wild watching this stuff come from the sky and the strobes look like lightning like their stage show was insane and i yeah. always wondered what the monitor 
guy did one of my friends mixed them for the last little iteration and i got to go out and hang out on stage and watch the antics it's always fun to see the other side of the band because when you're out in the crowd or you're at front of house you kind of watch from this picture like from the tv view and when you're at monitor world you get all the little inside jokes and everybody walk into the talk back mics and it's it's like more light-hearted at, at that angle but for that part of the show of just watching it as a fan it was like intense yeah yeah and i mean a lot of these things are sort of can be a little goofy behind the scenes actually um i know rush rush was for sure it was like uh you know like it was like filming um a mel brooks movie you know and you're you know you walk on on the set and there's the same cast of characters that are in every mel brooks movie <laughs> May the Schwartz be with you. Yes, yes. <laughs> Brad, I, I I love the topic of the engineer's involvement in the artist's sound. And so, you know, I have to imagine looking at this list, you had some artists who just said, make me sound like the record, make me sound good. And then you had some other artists who really wanted to work with you closely on crafting the sound of the show and giving you feedback and listening to recordings. And uh, I mean, can you can you talk a little bit about your experiences in that regard? Yeah, I think like most tours, at least most tours since we've been able to fairly easily multi-track live, there's been some moment where um, the artist was out at front of house or or maybe in a control room with me working on the, you know the playback and listening to themselves and 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 um, that's really made it a lot easier, honestly, and it, because we are using usually using the record as sort of a jumping off point, but it is a live show. And, it, and I've always had this thing. Like I, when I go back and think about the tours I've loved, they didn't necessarily sound like the record quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here. They're, you know, they had a little sort of something extra. They were in, in some way better than the record audio wise. I, uh, I say larger than life is the way. Yeah. 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 Uh, it was really so you have an experience when you see the show uh, from an audio standpoint, you have an experience when you see the show that's different than when you put the headphones on and listen to it. Um, I kind of feel like oh, whatever that is, that's, that's kind of what we're going for. You know, not really, a, you know, not going to pretend, make it sound exactly like everything that's going on in the record, but we do use the record sort of as a template. You know what I mean? Like just kind of a, uh, a, a touchstone. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, in terms of, especially I have to imagine, you know, again, with such a wide range of artists to kind of give you some context on, okay, well, you know, artistically, what is this artist trying to do? And what is, what is the, you know, what are they trying to accomplish with their music and, and mm-hmm. how, you know, what's, what's the right sound for this person? Yeah, totally. Um, and it's, you have like Jack White is different than Lincoln park is different than Jessica Simpson and, you know, but you have to have someplace to start. And to me, that's the, what, what the artist created, why, why we're on tour. (laughs) But, you know, I I mean, I have had, I've had experiences where the artist wasn't all that happy with the record actually. Um, and some pretty big names too that were not especially happy with the way the record came out. So we sort of fairly early on in the process 
just said, well, what record, you know, what record did you like? <laughs> let's, do, let's use that. <laughs> so is, is that typically a, a, an active collaborative process where you're, where you're sitting down with the artist and, and going through things and, and yeah, building it? Yeah, it's a conversation. And like I said, when we started integrating uh, multi-track recording and playback live, it became way more of an interactive mm-hmm. thing. I, I mean, I've told the story before where, you know, an artist is telling me about a certain blend or a certain EQ he wants and uh, they want. And uh, I can literally just step off to the side and go, well, well, you know, here's the three faders we're mixing. Why don't you just put, raise that fader up until you feel right about it. And they'll tell us how it's right to you. And I'm, um, and that's where we run with. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, I mean, it makes sense. So you started, um, playing in bands and stuff and you're also a, a berkeley graduate as well so well, uh, no I'm, I'm one of the 95 percent of the people who went to berkeley <laughs> did not actually oh, graduate yeah i went to school too i could do a mad cake <laughs> i um i was on tour i i senior year in college i was on tour so i i kind of attempted to go back but i uh i was no shame man there's no doing, shame in that i was hey, man, doing what I was doing what I wanted to do. I, I look back and I'm like, well, what, what the hell else would I have done? Just wasted another, I mean, not wasted. Look, it's great. Get, good to get an education. But at that point I was literally doing like going in and showing people I could do arpeggios. And, you know, it, it made no sense for me to, uh, to stay on when I was getting paid. I was out there getting paid. I think I was on, on tour with, with, uh, John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band. Remember those oh, guys? wow. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, my, my story is very similar. Like I was going to school here at Webster University and then I jumped on a tour and then I tried to start over. I went back to uh, Springfield, Missouri to get away from St. Louis to see if I could calm down and finish school. And uh, I was working at a venue and a band asked me to leave with them the next day. So like uh, school became this thing that was just I was I was looking for the note to, to show to my parents to like justify what I wanted to do and being on the bus or being in the van wasn't good enough for them, but it was good enough for me. Yeah. I had a, a similar kind of thing, but an interesting coda where my dad came to a psychedelic furs show I was mixing and he was there watching the show and watching everything that went on and like went backstage and met the uh, Richard Butler and they had a conversation. My dad's like a, uh, he's a, a professor, a chemical engineering professor. So he's very much an academic. And I remember him thinking, or I really got the impression and it was never said, but it, that he uh, came in sort of unimpressed with what I was doing, but left very impressed with what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember, like, he's like, it was, you know, I mean, we had a, a Yamaha, some PM, whatever the hell, on it, uh, and a ton of outboard gear and a lot of knobs and dials. And the, you know, the band were intelligent people. So it wasn't, I don't know, people just have this idea. And we all know, we, people have this idea of what goes on on tour and how people are on a tour. And it's, it's not like that. It's nothing like that. <laughs> And uh, most of these artists are not idiots. They're, they know exactly what they're doing. They're smart. They spend a lot of time building a, a career and a sound. Um, so I think that made that made an impression on him. And uh, I don't know. I never looked back. But but I just I just want to be clear. I didn't actually get a diploma. 
<laughs> I, you know, we've talked about this on the show in a previous episode, uh, the whole idea of going to school for audio or, you know, how do you get your education in audio? Should you get a formal education? And I think for a lot of people with, in our field in particular, mm. uh, you know, getting a degree may be a goal, but it may not be the goal. Um, or it may not be a goal at all. And it may be more about equipping yourself with the knowledge that you need to be successful in the field, whether you learn that from an uh, educational institution or from classes or, or you know, hands-on at a company or whatever you want. So um, I, I, I don't really see it as, I mean, I was at Berkeley for two weeks when I got offered a tour and I was like, no, I just got here. I should probably stay for a little bit longer, you know, but, but um, I mean, what you said, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the joke at that school. And I'm, I'm sure it's a joke at a lot of other similar schools. If you graduate, you're not good enough is what they say, because, you know, a lot of people go there and they get picked up after a semester and they go out and do something or, you know, so um, I, I think for me, there was a point when you're like, okay, I get it now. I, I, I got what I came here for. Yeah. Um, and then I'm equipped to go and do what I feel I want to do. So I, I, you know, I don't think there's any shame in that at all, man. Yeah. And I don't want to throw shade on Berkeley. I mean, it's a, it is a great school and I got a lot out of being there. Um, but you know, it is a problem they have there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I've talked directly to the Dean of students about it at one point and it, it's a problem because basically if you've made it through the first three years, you're, you're employable, <laughs> you know, yeah, for sure. Right there. And, and, and school is a lot different now. And this is what I told Michael about, I think, with the episode he's referring to. When when we were young, when I was young, it, there wasn't many options for live sound engineer. I mean, we were all still known as roadies for the most part. And that's why I brought up the justifying the job thing. Now it's a lot more specific. There's on-hand training. There's, um, you know, internship programs with actual production companies. So it it is a little bit more legitimate now and the technical side's being explained a little bit better through, you know, notation of, of people actually sitting down and writing these books and, and getting the people out. I mean, there's definitely value to it, no matter if it's Berkeley or your local community college, they're trying to get a grip and, and put it into a real job category. Yeah. And I, I would say just my opinion at this point is community colleges would be a great way to go. And, and then, because you learn so much just being involved with the sound company you're working with or, or going out and doing shows. And um, I have to say also just generally so much more professional now than when I started. It was basically, I got on a bus. Was, I might as well got on a, a pirate ship. Yeah. <laughs> you know? The eagle. Yeah. So I think if you know a few things you know if you know the basics of how sound works and you know sort of signal flow and um you're going to pick up a lot going into a shop and working at the shop and and going out and uh, you know i mean my first mixing gigs i was mixing wedding bands you know and that's where i learned mm -hmm. i probably learned yeah, more I mixing wedding bands than i did at at Berkeley, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I learned a lot of. Well, right, sorry, dean of students. <laughs> no, I think I mean I, it, there's you know I, I had a conversation with Pat Brown from Synodcon about this a couple of years ago. He said he said ideally it's a mix. Ideally there's like you know textbook learning and you're learning the fundamentals and you're learning the theory and you're learning the math and you're learning the the, the nuts and bolts and then there's the you're going to go out and put hands on the gear and actually do this stuff and and those both play a role and I and I'll also just say that. 
for me, one of the biggest benefits of going to a school uh, was the networking. For sure. It, it not, not all about, look at this degree I can hang on my wall. But I, I know when I graduated, I knew people that did what I wanted to do in every state. And so, you know, when we were on tour, I would, you could, I mean, (laughs) the first tour was like, hey, we don't want to spend all our merch money on a hotel room tonight, so let's crash somewhere, right? So when the Berkeley Network, we went out, we would tour and we'd all crash each other's couches and stuff. Mm -hmm. So just knowing, you know, oh, I know someone who can play on this project or I know a good producer for this project. So um, there are a lot of things that come out of a formal education that are not a degree in a frame. So I think, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of aspects to that yeah. for sure. And the, and the network is probably the biggest one besides those. For sure. Yeah. Yep. So Chris, yeah. So your, your most, your most recent longest tour, I know, I know your last gig before COVID was Katy Perry, but you, you did a, you were out for a while with uh, Florence and the machine, correct? Love them. Love them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, all 2018, most of 2019 and went straight to Sarah Borales from there. Yeah. So uh, I was um, I hadn't actually seen one of Florence's show live, so I was just watching through some some YouTube videos, and, and it made me maybe wonder or think. So so she has a uh, what I would consider rather a dynamic show in terms of of, of levels and that like very soft spoken moment. She sounds like she she's a very soft spoken person, yet she can wail when she needs to. Uh, there's a lot of percussion and drums, and yet there's intricacies of having a harp and stuff. What's um, what's it like? Um, taking the audience through that dynamic ride and not keeping it on eleven the entire time and bringing that audience with with the music. Yeah, well, it's a challenge for sure. And you're right. I mean, sh- that show is very uh, dynamic. F- you know, from an audio point of view, there's par- parts where it was where it's quite loud and parts where it's quite soft. And um, I think that I I kind of have evolved over my career from being like a you know early on in my career i was mixing metal bands like queensrike and uh rock bands and um i kind of felt like i came to this place where you know what if there's a part of the show where it's quiet then you just have to let it be quiet and the audience will shut up and listen at some point if they're if they're actually interested uh so there are times when and she's good at, by the way, she's also very good at sort of managing this with the audience where it's, you know, it's time to be quiet. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, um, she'll be up there singing acapella with a harp and sure it's not, you know, it ain't 102 DB. Uh, but, but the audience, you know, they love her and they follow along with it. And, um, you know, the, I think you just have to let it, be that way so there's a sort of like i always say this is interesting thing about mixing live is that you are the recording engineer the mix engineer and the mastering engineer all at the same time hmm. and and you know with like some ridiculous amount of uh, of acoustic gain in the room <laughs> to, to make it more challenging um so there is a mastering component where you're trying to kind of make it all fit together dynamically but you know it's unrealistic to to go too far with that 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 you have to let the quiet parts be quiet sometimes um and you're i mean and there are times where she's belting um and i you know i'm not like i'm not one of those people i'm not a big loudness war i don't care right (laughs) whatever i i kind of like it to be loud 
but uh you know there are times when it's just appropriate for it to be quiet I think you know the other thing we've talked about this with uh, with Pavin when he was on the show talking about mixing you know Billie Eilish mm-hmm. and Ryan O'John doing you know like a lot of the uh, like the Bieber type acts right where you the, the stereotypical arena full of screaming teenagers types of thing where where they're you know they're triggering your your SPL alarms and the band's not even playing yet um, mm-hmm. in a way there's an upper limit you can't you can't steamroll that with a PA you just can't you, you're gonna kill people no. so you know you have to at some point let it be what it is and if they want to hear the show, they'll quiet down, you know? <laughs> well, and that happens. And I, I, it happens er, pretty much every time I've done that, where it's like, this is a quiet part of the show. And if people are being too loud, other people will shush them. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's, and I don't know what to do about the, you know, the screaming, the, you know, I, I'm with you. I don't think you're not going to win that battle ever, you know? Um, and I'm sure Billie Eilish is a, a, a challenge in, in, in a lot of ways there. Uh, Which, by the way, Michael, that's Drew Thornton, not uh, not Pavin, but it's all good. Oh, yeah, did I true, say? Sorry, Drew. I know he listens to the show, too. I'm going to get a text for this. Hi, hi, Drew. I got your back. Uh, well, speaking of the crowd, I noticed, um, I feel like it wasn't just on Rush. I thought I said it on some of your other videos. Uh, often quite an amount of mics at front of house. Uh, was that for uh, audience mics for monitors, or is that something you're doing at front of house for recording purposes? Um, that's for uh, recording. Um, so we're trying to capture ambience and audience uh, for use uh, later. But, uh, so, the you know, the DVD or or what have you. But I do think they get also get used at least some of them get used for uh for in-ear monitoring purposes also i don't think the stuff out at front of house is very useful for that but we do put mics along the front of the stage um mix of uh usually large diaphragm condenser mics and shotgun mics mm-hmm. sort of just pointing towards the back of the house i don't know that the whole problem with the front of house mics of course is it's everything's 100 milliseconds late Mm-hmm. and that could be weird yeah i mean it, it could be helpful i know so i mean back when i was working with josh groban i mean we we did front of house mics as well uh and, but we would ride it in and out you know in between songs so that way it's when there is sure you know sure. when you are trying to interact with the audience you get that dynamic mode obviously during a song you can you can pull that back and and not not throw things off yeah but you're paying attention chris <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to your credit um i'm curious speaking of uh crazy rock and roll um and madness uh so marilyn manson yeah uh that had to have been a um a time a journey uh a uh an experience what was uh i i have i've at least have experienced his show once not not working just uh, observing uh and he's a phenomenal performer um what was uh what was it like mixing and being a part of uh that circus well so i'll say i loved it like i really had a good time i I mixed the mechanical animals tour and the hollywood tour um i really liked the mechanical animals tour and i think the record is really good i mean it's it's kind of worth revisiting it's very david bowie Hmm. um and there's a whole story going on in it but i won't that's another subject i guess uh when i met him i kind of didn't know what to expect but he was uh 
he knew he knew what he was doing. I mean, it was he was very smart about it. It was there was very much a a method. It, it uh, and it, it could be really chaotic during the shows, but um, I, I would say I had like very few conversations with him that weren't totally like lucid on point about you know uh, you know specific thing about audio or he so he's not the character well I don't see it at that time well it was like uh late 90s yeah that was all the hits right in a row so you were you were mixing the the album cycles where he already drug like five singles into those albums too so it was like hit after hit i'm sure yeah yeah so at that point um you know it was all good we had a great working relationship he i would say he had a way of kind of like trying to poke people like you know what i mean like poke the bear kind of get people's goat uh, but uh, whatever i if you didn't fall for it, you were, it was all good, you know? I, I feel like he also falls into, also based off of influence, I feel like he falls into the Reznor camp, right? So both him and oh, Reznor yeah. were heavily influenced they by... They traded band members. Um, well, well, that, but I'm saying um, heavily influenced by David Bowie, like, right? That was like the yeah. singular person that really influenced both of them. And both of them are, in their own right, you know, effing crazy on stage, but with intention, I feel like, you know, I mean, yes, I, I maybe in his later years, Manson got a, maybe a little more um, office rocker, maybe the people would have preferred to. Uh, but um, I, from an art standpoint, I, I and I think like the difference and this might sound like a I don't care. Uh, you like, the, <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, the difference in like, uh, um, okay. So kiss is like all about the performance. And for me, I could care less about their music. I don't think it's that amazing. Right. But then I feel like uh, with at least like Nine Inch Nails and Manson, they have both elements of both like it is a over the top, very intentional show while also being really good music. Yeah. And again, I would say go put on the mechanical album, excuse me, mechanical animals album. It's there's a lot of cool stuff on there. And and if you read the backstory on on like the 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 narrative that's supposedly going on, it's it's very Bowie. It's very much like spiders of mars sort of vibe going on um i'll just say that he comes off as kind of a madman and he's not i mean he knows what he's doing it's very it well at least then it was very calculated very much written out um for the couple hours he was on the stage yeah who knows what was going to happen it was always <laughs> i would say i never laughed so much on a tour in my life i mean just stuff would crazy things would happen and it was uh, lucky to be you know 100 feet away from the stage what was going on but um yeah it was, it was good i liked uh so you had an article at one point talking about you, the use of palmers uh, and I and I liked your line that said uh, one advantage of using Palmers was that there was no mic stands to knock over. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I will say that I, to this day, when you're pushing out onto a uh, at a festival onto the stage on a festival, that you if you get a mic stand, it's going to move. <laughs> I, I mean, look, I I get the trade off. Like I understand the trade off taking a guitar direct and taking a guitar, putting a you know nice combination of mics on a guitar. But, um, it's the, first of all, the trade off is not nearly what it used to be. Uh, 
And I think that, you know, you have to be practical about what you're getting involved with. Hey, people are throwing mic stands all over the stage. You, you know, either put a Palmer on it or, or have a cabinet in the back with a mic on it. I was with a band that was sponsored by a mic stand company because he broke at least four shows. <laughs> oh, God, who's that? That's awesome. Fall Out Boy for the first two <clears throat> records. That's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, it, yeah, like you said, kicking over a mic stand or moving a mic stand, especially on a festival show, is just like, all right, well, we have 45 minutes. If I get someone in Monitor World to run out there and fix it, they're just going to knock it over again. So, well, and, you know, you mic a guitar amp and that mic moves an inch. It's a big difference. It's a huge difference. It's not like, oh, whatever, it's an inch, who cares? It's, uh, you know, that totally changes the sound. I mean, the mic, you know. Palmer saved my life. Yeah, exactly. My, I, you know, once I heard that I could get the guitar sound into the desk and it was clean and I didn't have like drum bleed and stuff in there, that was when I was like, I didn't didn't look back. That's, that's the ticket to me is just the clean. Cause if you give me a clean signal, I can do pretty much anything that we want to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to me, when you have the bleed and there's, it goes for vocal bleed too. Um, it was funny. Uh, the, my, my, uh, the artist that I, that I work with now, she, uh, she likes to hang out right in front of the drum kit. And, uh, so I, I went out and found a mic that Kyle hooked me up with, uh, yeah. with a Heil mic that, that it, it's really tight pattern. It keeps the, a lot of the drum bleed out of the vocal mics. And my friend said, well, I don't like the sound of the mic. I'm like, well, I, I have EQ, but for me, I have to get that bleed out because if I get the bleed out, we can do EQ all day. But if I have all this <clears throat> crap coming in, then I'm really, really limited in, in what I can do downstream of that so yeah i mean for me the 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 big thing about the guitar was hey let's get it clean and then then we can talk about anything else from there you know so we always always talk about how it's critically important to get the sound right at the source and 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 it is it's true but if the source is you know three feet in front of a drum set (laughs) then you have other you have other considerations than strictly you know what's the best sounding exactly. I mean, it's not, you're not, you're not make, you're not mixing a show that's in a vacuum. It's, it's on the stage. And so it'd be the best sounding mic in the world, but it's just feeding back. It's not helpful. So I kind of want your take on this, um, going from Palmer's back to mics on a cabinet, maybe back to Palmer's or Kemper's or whatever the, the new thing is. Did you ever like, experience maybe like a proximity effect when you went back to using mics because when i started using palmers it felt like the speaker was the line array of the guitar cabinet and then when i went to mics it was is a weird thing for me to try to get rid of that proximity of the the air between the microphone and the speaker cabinet itself yeah. And I was always trying to re-emulate what I had with those Palmers because I, I, it's not that I love the tone because they got a little bit gritty sometimes and the distortion and, and feedback wasn't there like I was used to having. Mm. But the I, I loved hearing the line array sound like a speaker cabinet without yeah. a speaker cabinet. Did you ever yeah. notice that? Well, I'm not sure I have a direct answer to that because, I mean, I've never, I've never had that happen like with the same guitar player. You know what I mean? Like, let's go back and forth between the two things. It's always been like I go from one tour to another. Uh, I'll say that Van Halen, they showed me how they mic'd Eddie Van Halen's um, uh, amp, uh, speaker cabinet, I mean. Uh, And he was on, he was on, uh, we had mics on him, not a Palmer. And uh, they took the, um, 
the grills off the cabinet and put the 57s. I, I, you can't get any closer to the speaker. Like <laughs> I want to say like a quarter inch from where the, the, the dust cap meets the, the um, speaker. And uh, it was, I was like, okay, well that's interesting. I've never seen that done before. But you know what? When we went out front and he played, it was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's the sound. <laughs> uh, you know, you couldn't argue with it. It's not like him. So, and it's so immediately, there was a, uh, you know, a YouTube clip that I found of, it was funny. Uh, Jim Yak sent me this video and there's a, there's a Van Halen documentary <clears throat> from the 90s. And, uh, mm-hmm. Sammy says something to Jim and uh, he sent me that and I was watching that. So, like, for a while, every time I got on YouTube, it was suggesting Van Halen soundcheck videos to me. <laughs> yeah. um, and one of them, I it was they must have been on a cruise ship or something, and somebody was like leaning over some railing, looking down onto the stage, and and Eddie just comes on and opens his guitar up and just starts playing. And I'm like, man, that is just so immediately recognizable, yeah. and it's so him. And you know, as an engineer, that's one of those just stay the hell out of the way moments. It, yeah, no you know? doubt, no <laughs> doubt. It totally was like, okay, there's the sound. I'm not gonna. Yep. Yeah. So, so speaking of which, like, uh, you know, you've had a long career in, we, you know, we always talk about audio. There's like these, um, these like un these rules that are like supposedly unbreakable. And often like when you do it's with purpose or you learn something new, was there ever a point where you came across like, you know, Hey, this is a standard rule you're always supposed to do. You change something and it opened up something completely different for you. I know it's a maybe esoteric question, but, um, maybe like just, uh, some, you know, you were doing something one way for so long in your career and all of a sudden you maybe made a shift on something and it, and it, and it helped you out. Yeah. I, I tend not to stumble on those things accidentally. I tend to steal them from other engineers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <clears throat> like, wait, you can push all the buttons in on 1176. <laughs> um, yeah. Stuff like that. Uh, um, I'm trying to think like, I don't, I li- literally like I spent a lot of time got like, well nowadays online, but like when I was touring, I would, I even go, I'll go out and watch the front of house, the uh, front of house guy from the opening act. Cause everybody's got tricks and sometimes they're really cool. And, uh, I always feel like it's your bag of golf clubs, you know, what are you going to pull out for this? Mm-hmm. Um, what you've got in your bag is, is what you got in your bag of tricks is the important thing. Uh, I mean, what, I mean, the most important thing is sort of just having this overall idea of, of what's going to sound good for an artist and understanding what the artist is trying to do. But you know, is the best thing to pull out a sand wedge or a, a seven iron or what, you know? So those kind of things where I learned about, wait, so you run the drums through, a group and you plug it into 1176s and you put all the buttons in, and you bring it back and you mix that into the sound parallel compression. Um, yeah, now, like now everybody talks about it, but when I was first shown to me, I never heard of it. I, I don't know that anybody was doing it except the engineer. I happened to steal it from. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I've invented or stumbled on very few things in my career. I mean, honestly, just kind of somebody that pays attention to what people are doing. So speaking of that, with with your tenure as a, a front of house guy who's mixed some serious heavy hit heavy bands, what engineer did you always find yourself like looking up to? Like who 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 in your roster were you like, man? I loved go, going to see so and so because I learned a lot and the show just sounded amazing. 
Well, because there's a lot. I mean, Scoville, uh, Pooch. Uh, I, I stole a lot of stuff from Robert, by the way. When I f- was first coming up, when I was first starting out and touring live, like on the large level, I was the like the fifth man on a four-man sound crew for Rush on the Presto tour. And uh, I made a point of, yeah, yeah, it was a good and a great sound of tour. And I made a point of going out there and, and paying attention to Robert, w- w- what Robert was doing. Um, the other thing is like, I, I don't know. I've never met an engineer that wouldn't, that wasn't like happy to tell you what he was doing. If you just asked him, you know? Uh, and I, I think it's really important to, you know, politely and not, you know, to ask what, well, what is it? What are you doing with this? The, with this compressor on this thing. And, um, so kind of towards the beginning of my career, a lot of it was just what, you know, cribbing off of what Robert was doing. And, um, um, I've learned a few things from Kevin Elson, you know, just watching what he was doing. And so, I mean, there's a kind of a long list. Uh, it's hard to like, you know, say there's this one, idol actually my mentor was ted lamey who was the uh the system tech on a few tours i did like the audio crew chief on a few tours i did with um with uh, electrotech and he really sort of showed me that this could be fun and serious at the same time you know like pay attention you learn something and um so and he's no engineer so i just feel like that the important thing is to pay attention to everybody brings really cool tricks to the table. And when you hear something cool, ask, or at least, you know, steal. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I'm kind of a sum of things that I've stolen from everybody else. I'd love to learn a little bit about your relationship with your system tech when you're on tour and, you know, your level of involvement with uh, how the PA's kind of deployed and, and tuned every day and what you're, what you're looking for out of that. Right. That's. Um, it's kind of a loaded question. I <laughs> well, I think it, I used to be my own system tech for years and now I am decidedly not. And uh, I think that part of that's because, I've worked for a few bands recently where we're going from festival to festival and the systems are all different and I can't, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, there's a lot going on there now networking wise and so forth that I'm just not up on. uh, And I need to lean on somebody who is up on that stuff. So I've, I've gone from being really like, I could almost do a tour without a system tech to being not really, really, really need a good system tech. (laughs) And it's got, it's got more specialized, you know, that's, that's, I think it's a bigger job than it used to be. There's a lot oh, more yeah. variables. You know? There's a lot more variables and it, it it's really come to a place where it can make or break a show. Like the it didn't used to be like that. You just sort of, you know, roll everything out of the truck and point the loud side at the audience. Now it's you know, there's a lot of measurements going on. There's a lot of variable uh, variables, not you know, how the coverage is working and how you get it to optimize and um to say nothing of the networking aspect of it which is you know pretty new uh so i think it's the last 
with Florence the Machine and Sarah Bareilles, it was like really, really important that the system tech come to every show, whether regardless of whether we were even using the the sound company system. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you are you are you in there in the morning walking and and helping with the tuning, or do you get to a point where you trust that person to do that job for you? How's that work? Well, I, I do go in fairly early, and if I see something I don't think I'm going to like, we'll have a we'll have a conversation about it. But a lot of times, there's a good reason for what what they're doing. Um, there's, as far as tuning the PA, what I've really started to do over the last 10 years is let the system tech tune the PA and then find, and you know, that's like sine wave sweeps and pink noise. And I don't, you know, who knows, right? (laughs) So I'm looking at a line on a computer. It could, it's important to remember the end of the night, nobody cares that the line on the computer is flat. Nobody. Right, it has to sound good, uh, and a, subjectively, it has to sound good. And um, the really the last thing we do is I I bring the band multi tracks back into the show. We listen to the band coming through the PA in the room, and that's kind of where the conversation happens. Uh, sometimes things that the system tech has done that seem right for uh the room and the coverage aren't working from a musical point of view which is you know again if you if if they're good it the guy i had on uh a lot kleiner is the guy i had on florence and the machine i i would walk up to the desk without ever hearing the pa and mix the show i like i knew it was going to be good mm-hmm. right or or at least better you know better than acceptable like it was really going to be good uh and that's, you know, that's a huge, that, I mean, it's just so good for your confidence and it just takes so much off of your mind. Um, but we always- I guess just having that. That, having that trust that I trust this person who's doing this job and I know that when I walk up to this, it's the best that, you know, it could be. Yeah. And you know, if they've done what they can do with it. And uh, it's, there always was a conversation. And I think like over the course of a couple of weeks on a tour where you're like, playing back the band from the show before and listening to it and be like, I don't like this. And what if, what if we take a little more of that out or add a little more of this? And I've also really gone from being that guy that had the giant haystack in the low end to, can we just sort of make it flat ish, you know? Uh, but I think that's also a function of the improvement of PA systems over time. Like I feel like there used to be a time where you had to just, jack the low end to make it exciting and I, it's really not true anymore like they are yeah. pretty responsive and that's a whole i mean that topic is a is just a rabbit hole that, that we've spent a good amount of time in on this show i i enjoy talking about it um i i, I think uh you know i'll say i'm i'm watching if i know and i haven't toured in, in a while but if i'm doing a series of gigs with an engineer I'm watching. Yeah. So if I see you take the same thing out of the PA three days in a row, I'm just going to start tuning it that. You know what I mean? I'm not yeah, going to yeah, yeah. keep putting you back where you're not happy. So well, and it, always it, sort adapt. Of, it sort of depends on the music too. If I feel a really, really like heavy guitar uh, oriented band, then you know maybe you don't want, you want to be sort of sitting on something in the mm-hmm. two to 4k region. But I, I just think that that's more of a function of mixing now. It used to be really like you tuned the PA to that. I don't think you do that as much now as you did 20 years ago, say. Like it, 
Well, especially I think with this, with the move to streaming and broadcast, I mean, we're arriving at a place where what comes out of your console needs to sound like the show. It needs mm-hmm. to sound correct. Mm-hmm. And so our role as system engineers really turning much more into accurate transmission. Right. And I think you have to be able to put it on a PA and then, and then bring it down to a pair of Genelex on the, or whatever, you know, a pair of small speakers and have it work in both places. Uh, Mike, you guys don't want to talk about subs on an aux? <laughs> oh, I, I'm all over it. Hold, hold, hold on, I, I, I want to. You want the nickel? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to put a, your nickels in the mail from Brad Maddox. Yeah. <laughs> I want to. I want to put a pin though back in that in that yeah. uh, end pin of the last thing, or just that you know we mentioned Pat Brown earlier, right? So Pat Brown has that whole thing of like art versus science, and I think that right. you know earlier on, you know, system tuning was I. Correct if I'm wrong. People actually considered that a little bit more art than they did science. Whereas now we consider it more science, and like you're delivering a system that shouldn't be doing anything, shouldn't be any, for lack of better you know words, it shouldn't be colorizing, right? It's anybody should be able to walk up and bring what it is that they bring their art to, and should should translate. And, and I don't think that's where it used to be. So I think it's probably where the trend has changed some, um, and that the, the art should be at your console, not in the PA. Right, and that's. That's more or less the arc I've I've taken over the past twenty years. Like it used to be, you tune the PA for for style stylistically, I guess, for the band. And now it's really like I just want it to be accurate. But you remember, it wasn't accurate. There was a time when it wasn't accurate. There was a, a time before line arrays. There was a time when we were just shoving speakers in the air. And let's be honest, most of the time it sounded like crap, and, and <laughs> it was loud. Yeah, I mean, and you just, and part of the, what made it work was, you know, jacking the subs so that it was exciting and, and, and hyping the high end. And uh, I mean, those, thankfully that's not the case anymore. That's why I want it to sound like a giant pair of focals. Okay. Just, just. And and Pooch has said said the same thing too. Um, But I think, I, I mean, Chris, I think your comment brings up a couple of thoughts to me. One is that, you know, 30 years ago, the science just really wasn't there yet. It was, it was really fun. You know, it was really fundamental stuff. Um, the stuff that's happening today with PA technology and, and measurement technology and beam steering, and it's, it's phenomenal. Right. Um, so, so there's a less of a black box aspect to it now, no pun intended. Like we yeah. can, we, we know what the PA is doing to the signal. Yeah. Um, I think that's part of it, but I also think I, I have seen a shift in moving away from the tonality of the PA, like contributing to the tonality of the mix, like these, these crazy, crazy tilt ups that yeah. you see. Um, yeah. Because what happens is your board mix now sounds ridiculous when you yeah. send it anywhere. Else. So, so I have seen the last couple of years, a shift away from that. I know Jim Yak talks a lot about it to us and he's written a couple of articles about it. Um, trying to get what comes out of the desk. Let's treat that as the reference. This is tonally where I want it to be. And then the PA just, gets that to the people yeah. you know that's kind of what i've seen yeah i think that's absolutely valid that's and and, and now it's it's the correct approach and part of it is also just the the materials that are used in the speaker design is so much better so much better uh, you know now i mean uh we were just trying to get as much racket we could in as as we could in a truck at one point you know now, now it's now it's uh you know the materials are better the construction is better. Uh, all of it's improved to the point where you actually can use it as as something of a reference. You know, like you treat it like a reference monitor, you know, albeit in a hockey rink. But you know, 
Yeah, and I think there was an interesting thread that came up on one of the forums last week, and it was like, you know, everyone always talks about these old sound systems and how great they sounded, and they said, do you think it's kind of like they're looking back favorably on it? Or, you know, if we if we magically transported back 20 or 30 years, would we stand in front of the house and go, oh my God, it sounds terrible? Um, and I, I think it's an interesting topic, but for me, I think it's not all about, I am absolutely positive there were some great rigs that sounded really good at front of house. I know the stuff that, that Scovey and, and uh, uh, Bernie Broderick are doing with the with the EAW rebuild, like all that stuff is really cool. I think where the strides have been made is that we can get a lot closer now towards same show everywhere, reducing yeah. that variance. I would you just say I mean? Bernie is not rebuilding those EAW uh, systems with components from the eighties. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, so it's, it's worth mentioning that it, it's an improvement. I mean, he's redesigned yeah. it basically. So yeah. uh, I will say, I remember mixing on giant S4 rigs and there was something yeah. about all the low end that came out of that, that it's hard to match. Like it was really kind of coherent, popped you in the chest kind of sound. And that, and that, I don't know that there's anything out there now that does that exactly. I will say in every other aspect, they sound, things sound better now, but there's something to be said for that, that kind of thing. Do you, do you remember, in that era, and I mean, Kyle, you can talk. I, you you talk about taking out your prism rig all the time. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Like, do you remember um, what it was like walking the venue at that point in time? And and do you remember the variances being like, be like, wow, these are you know, I think is it, is it fair to say that things are a lot more even throughout the space nowadays than they were? Are you asking me? <laughs> I'm asking. Yeah, I'll let you kick it off, man. For sure. Yeah. Short short answer. Yeah. I think I, I say overall has been. It's much better, but there are some, there are a handful of things I'm sort of nostalgic about with old PAs, but. Uh, I mean, I think about the, uh, I want to see Billy Joel at uh, Shea Stadium, the last concert before they, they rebuilt it. Uh, I got a DVD of it. It's fantastic. Um, and Brian Ruggles mixed that thing on a big old stack of S4s just because he's like, you know, that's felt like, felt like the right thing. Dude, and yeah, then he said, I don't think I want to do it again, you know? So <laughs> then they <laughs> shipped them like all that. to Japan and they, <laughs> and they use them as side fills. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I like the prism rig a lot. One, because I was a kid and uh, it was always one of my dreams. And then I liked how seamless it was to, like you said, walking the arena. Like when I walked with my system tech, um, and I, I got to follow him around with the, the lake and it was seamless. And, and when we went to line array, it was always that, that gap between the outfills and the main PA. And I was always really just super concerned about people getting the same energy, you know, if they didn't spend a lot of money and they had to sit in those seats and then the people that spent the money get a better show because they're in the focal point. Like that was the only thing I worried about, but yes, short answer, like Brad said, I, I think it's better now, um, with array technology. Um, and, and going back into the same ice arena 42 times helps as well, <laughs> yeah. you know, cause you finally figure out, Oh, that point didn't work the last time let's just bridle it over one more and pull it closer together and we'll beam steer this thing you know there's a lot more magic that happens those those first line arrays were 
an, I think an attempt to make it smaller and less truck. I, I don't think it had anything to do with, with sound quality or anything like that, because there was still the old folks that were like, Oh, line array, isn't this, there's all kinds of cancellation, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there was always kind of some grumblings about it, but I think it's way better now. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, there's always, you know, you have digital desks, people were grumbling when you have, uh, you know, being able to run waves live, people are grumbling. I think that there's always going to be people that, and, and Brad, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts. on You, you use a, a shitload of plugins live. Uh, you see the, uh, uh, you, you got the, the Not, UAD rig. I don't anymore. I really... Are you cutting down? I'm really you want to cut, diet? I'm really, <laughs> keto. keto. I'm not food. on keto. I'm not on keto. Um, I have really used less and less. I mean, not none, um, but I find myself really gravitating towards a handful. I, I want to say like uh, Florence and the Machine, I might have had 20 total and that's you know with verbs and stuff mm-hmm. um i don't there i've kind of just embraced digital like I, I used to go i used to shove plugins on things all over the place to try to make it sound analog yeah. <laughs> and i just stopped it's like well this is silly i, I mean to me okay <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean it's it's a very digital is a very accurate representation of the sound. And I and I just kind of have decided I'm doing that. I'm doing that. I'm just going to make it sound as great as it possibly can sound and not inject a bunch of noise into it. You know, um, Hey, look, rational minds may differ. It's, it's, it's very much a stylistic thing, but uh, well, I mean, that's the whole, everyone's got their own recipe. I'm just, you know, I'm interested. You, you I saw a couple of pictures on your website, which, Fixin to get mixing.com. Let's put it in the mixin with no G. Fixin to get mixin.com. Chris, we can put it in the description of this episode for people that want to check out Brad's website, see what he's up to. Well, that's um, actually a different Brad, you know. Yeah, that's Brad. not the yeah, wrong, wrong guy, dude. It is really that's crazy. That's Brad Divins. That's Brad Divins. Oh my gosh. That's wow. I've screwed up two people's names this episode. Well, all right, everyone go to Brad Divins episode two. Well, at but, least you typed, uh, your, you typed your own name in correctly. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna do it better than Kyle. That dude, hey, play, Brad, play, yeah, was in uh, that band Wrathchild America. Yeah, yeah, I know he's a friend of mine. I plug his oh. show by all means. <laughs> he's a really nice guy. I, I am so out of sorts tonight uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, I, I, uh, I think you know, I, I, it's not about uh, hey, who's got you know this the most outboard plugins, or I do it all in the box. Like these are points of pride for some people. But at the end of the day, you know, how's your show sound? You know, you're getting, yeah, you're it's getting the, the same result. Thing. Like, nobody, nobody walks out thinking, wow, that RTA was flat. Like, <laughs> know, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And um, for me, all the plugins just started sort of mucking it up to me. And again, like it, people are going to do it differently. People are going to get their, their results differently. I'm not saying don't use them or don't buy them. I, I just kind of really am like, well, you know, the compressor on the desk is not bad for most things. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I just I, I. I'm a lucky if I get half a DS, half a DSP card filled up these days. Do you think that part of that is that the the stuff that's in the digital desk, the modern digital desk has gotten better? So you, you yeah. have less of a need oh, to go for a hundred percent. The EQs are way better. The. Well, first of all, the the 
the preamps and the converters are way better. So right off the bat, it's an improvement. Um, and I, part of it's also, I mean, you know, Lincoln Park, Florence and Machine, Sarah Bareilles, they're, well, yeah, what are you going to do to that? You know? <laughs> Sarah's a great show. I, I've seen her a couple of times. It's always a great time. She always sounds great. I don't know if, I don't know if you were mixing at that point, but. Uh, I mixed the, la- uh, the last tour amidst the chaos. I don't think, I, th- I think this was a while ago. But, but I mean, it's, uh, she- it's. It's really good coming into the desk. Yeah. I, I, mean, I kind of feel like at some point you can just screw it up. You know, all you can do is make this worse. Right, <laughs> right. Like, don't touch it. Yeah, Chris just, Leonard, what do you got, man? Yeah. Well, I, so I'm curious, you know, a lot of people, as you're probably aware in this industry, look up to you as being one of the, I'll, I'll say it like elite or whatever mixers, right? Uh, so, but I'm curious in that. I'll say it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's their problem. I don't know. <laughs> I, um, if, if you had to define what you want your legacy to be from your career, what would it be? Oh, there's the 2021 question right there. There it is. We're doing. Yeah. Uh, um, well, that's an interesting question. I just think it's, if we talked about, touched on it earlier, if you look at my resume, you don't have to be pigeonholed. I mean, just, you know, have a really wide appreciation of music for, you know, basically everything. Every kind of music does not have to be your favorite, but you can appreciate Sarah Bareilles and Linkin Park and Rush, you know, rock, rap. I mean, it is possible to find things to appreciate in in all of those styles and to learn, just just constantly learning. I mean, I'm not... I'm not retiring, by the way. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, no, no. no. I, I, I'm asking this question of anyone of any age this year. I, you know, yeah. this is not. A, that's not that thing. It's just, yeah. you know, it, it's funny to see people's perspective of like. I mean, some people like I don't give a rat's ass about you know being legacy and known, but it's. It, I I think it's a good introspective thing to be mm-hmm. just conscious of. Of like, hey, if 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 I could be known for something, what would that be? I I would I would be proud to be known for someone who could mix a lot of different musical styles from, from country to hard rock and everything in between and around. Your here's leg, a, here's your a legacy fun exercise. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You check that box, man. Yeah. Um, one thing I found helpful kind of basing off this idea that, you know, even the lay, the lay people know when they're hearing a mix, that's not good. Like people, people yeah. can recognize like this doesn't sound good, but not everybody knows how to fix it. And that's where we make our bread. So, um, next time someone is in an environment where they're sitting there and they're, they're being, you know, forced to endure some sort of show or genre of music or whatever that they don't like. Um, one thing that turns it into a really productive mental exercise is how would I fix this? How would I make this better? And all of a sudden, <laughs> like it becomes a, a learning experience. So rather you're, than you're just talking sitting. about every, every person that bought a ticket to a rush show. basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I guess it's, it has to be said, and I don't think we admit it enough that I've certainly sat in front of my share of shows that did not sound good. I mean, it's some nights it's just not happening, you know. And I've had encounters with audience members that complained about the sound. I, I, I mean, August says, "Yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's awful. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm suffering. I'm the one that's supposed to make it sound good, but uh, <laughs> it's you know, I mean, it's not magic." There are just times where the ingredients aren't there. Yeah. Um, 
and maybe it, maybe it's important for people to hear that. So like you know you're going to have a bad gig. You know it's not the end of the world. Like it's part of our job. You yeah, know? there's and, no, and there's absolutely no way that you're going to do this for any amount of time and not have a bad show. Uh, in fact, I will say I've told people this over over the course of my career. I could probably count on my fingers the number of shows that were perfect from the get go. Hmm. Um, it's really rare, actually, that have the band just, you know, the uh, the curtain goes up, the band starts playing, and it's awesome right from the downbeat and awesome through the whole show. It doesn't happen that often. Uh, it's really way more typical. The first three or four or five songs are a struggle of to some degree, right? Maybe sometimes really difficult. A, a lot of it's on the band. Some of it's on the change of the acoustics now that there's an audience in the room. Um, which I will say as an aside, it doesn't always get better when there's an audience in the room, usually, but not always. Uh, I think that, like I said, it's not a magic thing that you do. You don't wave a wand when the band starts playing and instantly it becomes amazing. I'm throwing away my wand. (laughs) Keep it, keep it. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of variables um not the least of which is is the band and uh yeah it doesn't happen every night where it's great um i'd like to say we do it right 95 96 percent of the time but uh and there's it's also depends on the tour like i've done entire tours where nobody said anything about the sound like nobody said anything about it. i didn't get a single complaint about the audio on a shakira show that i remember anyway I, I was lucky to get through I, I like to think our record of rush shows. I think we got through like seven in a row where somebody didn't say something. Um, but it's a different audience, you know? It's they them had ponytails coming through <laughs> more more than is a, a larger than zero. Not a, a non zero number. You're so. you are definitely a legend, man. Like we we've had some Scove's been on the show, Howard like it's amazing that you would take the time out to come out and hang out with us and answer our silly questions. My pleasure. I, I really think that our listeners are going to love this episode because I, I could be on this thing for another hour. We're going to have to do this again. Well, you, 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 Brad said a very important word a little bit ago that alluded to the most important question. You mentioned ingredients. Oh, so, yeah. So um, of all your time touring the world, what is your favorite place to eat? Ooh. New York is an easy answer. No, 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 not, not a city. Come on, we, we have to narrow. It down. <laughs> like, we, we have to okay. narrow it down further. Well, you that. want like an actual restaurant? Yeah, or or style of food or something. There's got to be an experience of like, damn, I want to go back Some there. City, and eat yeah, this you're now. looking forward to getting to this city so you can say, yeah, I'm going to go over there and grab a sandwich or whatever. Whatever that place oh, is. Oh God, you've, you've, you've caught me off guard. This is so off topic. I thought we were going to talk about subs on an ox. <laughs> um, then we know Jeff two nickels. Okay, but I'm gonna say like I do have a favorite, and it's it is in New York. Uh, is it, Angelo's on Mulberry? Uh, it's an Italian restaurant, and it is so like it could be in Goodfellas, like it's like that, right? It's like oh yeah, it's like it, it's full of New Jersey garbage contractors. What do you Rolexes. order? Um, they just have like an Angel Hair pasta thing that's so good. It, it, uh, I mean, it's hard to go wrong at that place, honestly. In fact, I've been there where I just asked the waiter what what's good tonight, and it was good. Tour uh, <laughs> best catering. 
What was right. the tour that you did with the best catering where you were like, damn, this is better than the show. This is better than the 96% <laughs> so, that I have out there. I have, uh, we're just talking about the keto diet earlier. I actually went on a low carb diet um, at the start of the Shania Twain tour and it turned out to be like the best catering tour <laughs> I've ever done. <laughs> so it was like the whole time, I'm, they were really like good about accommodating it. But the whole time I just wanted to like completely shove the entire dessert table down my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Brad, thank you so much for for this has been really uh, yeah, of course, that's very fun. So subliminal ox. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> you want to you want to go there for a few minutes? Are yeah, we gonna are we it. gonna get let's nasty grams? Okay, yeah, I'm sending nasty grams to Signal to noise podcast. No, this will be good because we talked about this with Jimmy. We talked about this a bit with Howard. I've done a couple articles about this. This is a great topic, so let's do it. Let's let's. All right, it. all right. So, um, my own take is, my what I want subs to do is not be the low end of the PA. I want the subs to be an additional two thirds of an octave at the bottom of the PA. In other words, if I turn the subs off, I still want a full range sound. Period. So, uh, for the what I want to send to the subs is what only what I want to go to the subs. In other words, it can't take away from my left and right send to the, you know, what, what I'm going to ha- play the band that still has to sound good, that the track I'm going to send to the band still has to sound good. So it can't be like, if I turn the subs off, there's no low end. So I look at it as what if you're mixing in 5.1, are you going to send five things to the subs? No, you're only going to send the thing to the subs that you want to go to the sub, but that sub is providing that bottom extended low end that you're not going to get out of the other speakers. So that's how I treat it. Now, I've been in front of plenty of PAs where the subs were basically the low end of the PA. And in that case, yeah, that's problematic. If you're going to mix show like that, where you're sending, you're only sending uh, kick drum to the subs, but there's just not enough low end of the PA. So to me, what's really important out of a PA is full range. Without subs, full range. And then I want the subs to give me down to 50, 40, something like that. You know, yeah. not, I was, you know. I was thinking as you were talking, I mean, there there are some large format line arrays that will go down to 35 on their own. Yep. And there are some small systems that are you're lucky to get below 80. So <laughs> obviously there's there's a little bit of consideration of what is this, what is this rig capable of, you know? Yeah, and, you know, I think you... In this, if you have the opportunity to choose the PA, that's what I go for. I'm like, well, I want this PA to go down. You know, I want it to sound like a good pair of monitors, of reference monitors. So what is that? I mean, they don't go down to 30 necessarily, but they go down to 60. So I want to get 50, 40, 30 out of the subs in the PA, but I don't want to send everything to that. There's also, it makes sense to me, to set, use an aux because there's also sort of a power conservation aspect to using subs on an aux where, you know, you if you send everything to the subs, you're still inputting the whole mix. And then you have to take out like 90% of the power you've put into the front end of your crossover just to get the 90, maybe more. I, I mean, I, just to get that like, octave at the bottom that is what you really want so to, to me it makes sense from a front end point of view like I'm, i don't want to hit the crossover right. 
way harder than I have to just to get more kick drum and floor top. So it's a thing like I've really kind of gravitated towards mixing as though I'm mixing on 2.1, you know, not, not, so I have a left and a right and a dot one. And that's from that perspective, I would say you definitely want to use subs on an aux. Uh, Kyle looks like he's got a burning question here. Oh, yeah, do it. I don't. I you just, do oh, you left your hand raised. <laughs> he had his hand raised the whole time you were talking. I was like, man, Kyle, wait, jump in. Um, you know, I, I I really like that philosophy. I have to say I've, I've gone back and forth on it myself. Uh, a lot of it depends on the show. A lot of it depends on if I'm trying to use subgroups and how those are routed. And you have to think about things like that. Um, you know, I've done – there's a lot of mythology around this. And people are kind of scared of it. Uh, and a lot of it is not really a reason to be scared of. So I, I, I'm going to return back to what I said earlier, which is everyone's got their own recipe at the end of the day. How's it sound? You know, and I, I think I think it can be a powerful mixing tool. And so if it helps you get get your show to sound like you want it to sound, then why not? Right. Yeah. Well, I also say in any case, you better be prepared to mix a show in left and right. Like it, it yeah. can't be <laughs> like it can't be. That's the only way I know how to do a show, which is nothing like. I've had this discussion with the, like the what's your favorite PA? Uh, I don't know who stands out at front of house stomping their feet because it's a DMB PA instead of <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, yes. Yes. it used to be like really you had a choice between a, a PA that was pretty good and one that was horrible. But I mean, God, it's like there's all of these PAs do this now. I mean, even the even like the towards the lower end of the market towards the value end of the market. I mean, some of the stuff that I'm seeing now, small format boxes yeah. out of the box, they sound incredible. And, yeah. and I get called into tune them, and I don't do anything to them. You know, it's right. really amazing. Right, and if you what you are tuning is really more you're voicing the room than yeah. you know the, yeah. the actual. PM. Yeah, I mean the the presets that you know the out of the box presets are are really fantastic these days. And yeah, even even it's, it's funny to hear other engineers like. Oh, I hate whatever, you know, insert. It's like, what, really? I mean, you have to, how can you not mix a show of some quality on any of these things at this point? You know, um, I mean, I, I, I will admit some are better than, how do I put this? Like, I want to say there's half a dozen PAs I'd be happy to tour with and be totally happy to tour with. Like, I know I can make this work. And in, in the, the idea that I'm going to stand out there and, and blame the, the the K2 rig for the way it sounds. Like, come on. <laughs> That's really- you have to look at who's turning the knobs, man. I mean, I, I, I've heard one of the – I'll say the worst sounding show I've ever heard came out of what is considered one of the most reputable PA brands on the face of the earth. And so at some point you have to go, you know, <laughs> well, what about who's in charge of this yeah. thing? You know, did, you, did you ever have the experience what, like around the time when Line Arrays when, – when VDOS came out basically around that time – that there was, uh, I kind of got this idea that it, it kind of exposed some engineers as not that great. Like, like for a while, it was just all a mess, and that was okay because, you know, you were mixing on whatever. And but there was a but the, there was sort of a quantum leap in, in the quality of audio at that around that time, and um, it was really like, oh wow, you know, so there was some. It really kind of separated the the uh, cream from the, what am I trying to say here? The wheat from the shaft. 
Yeah. No, I, I think we actually. I think there was someone else who brought that up. I don't know. I don't. Know, I forget who it was. But I think someone else mentioned that exact phrase. Yeah. Well, you can't. I mean, there's less hiding to be done now that we're not. You know that we can control where the where the directivity is going, and we can pretty much give people the same show in every seat, and we're not slamming off all the walls. Uh, yeah, you're definitely removing a lot of the sources of stuff that would obfuscate. Yeah. You know what's coming out of your desk, and so yeah, I think there's a real there's a real effect there where when the PA becomes really well tuned and, and put in, it's a nice PA. Then yeah, you are hearing <laughs> you yeah. are hearing that mix for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, since we're we're carrying on this long, which is totally fine. Um, <laughs> between the acts that you've done, you mentioned you have stories and stuff. What is your go-to ultimate road story of of either shenanigans, craziness, whatever? What is, what's your go-to story? Oh, there's so many. Um, On Rush, we did a show in Prague and it was an overnighter from somewhere else, Vienna, maybe. I can't remember. Uh, So we, Went to Prague, and for whatever reasons, the trucks were super late. And we wound up sitting at what was, you know, the front of house area before any gear arrived, playing poker. And suddenly this sort of half-drunk Polish guy shows up, and uh, he doesn't speak English very well. What's his name, and Kyle? He's, he's uh, yeah. Polish. He's, um, he's trying to you know, communicate. How, I mean, he's a big fan, obviously, and he came all the way from Poland and he wants to see the shows. Anyway, the truck starts showing up and we're running very late, but apparently he's like a, like a sound guy in Poland. So we wound up like sort of adopting him for the day <laughs> to load in. And he's wiring in front of house with me. I, I mean, he probably knows like 50 English words. And um, everything he, every piece of gear he saw and it was Claire with this tour. Like he clearly came from a place in Poland where the where the, the gear was not the highest quality. And he was like every cable we pulled out, he was just amazed, like how unbelievable this multi-pin is. You know, was like he, he was like crying at one point. Like, this is so amazing. Anyway, like, so. should we all take some inspiration from that guy though? You know what I mean? Like, I really, I really, I really I love. I love that we all love what we do and we all look around and go, man, this is great. And I can't believe I get to get up and do this every day. And so like, there's, there's a lesson there, you know, yeah. it's a nice cable. <laughs> For sure. no, I was like, you're like, I'm um, dude, that's an XLR. Just relax. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this has been fantastic. So Brad, uh, now that I've, uh, in, in an error directed people to a website that is not your website where can people uh, catch up with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing uh we have a website called diablodigital.com it uh i'm a partner with greg price in this company we do a lot of pro tools uh rentals for touring so as you might imagine the website has not been updated much in the last several months <laughs> because we're really not a lot to report but um how are you guys dealing with that anyway by the way all that i mean uh, you know, yeah. Well, it's you know, it's it's been uh, it's been an interesting shift, yeah, shall yeah, we say? Yeah, yeah. Depot. Yeah, I know you're telling me that's. I mean, which is I people do. I have a lot of friends that went and worked for Amazon, and yeah, it's been nuts. I was in Australia but, uh, on March 12th, and I was actually sort of briefly worried about actually getting back into the United States. I, I will say I've been 
absolutely blown away by the the camaraderie and support and community that, that we've seen from the pro audio community in general and and also from our our little our little uh signal to noise podcast facebook group i mean yeah. we have a great group of people on there and nice. everyone's been trying to keep it positive and trying to support each other and <clears throat> that's what we're trying to do here on the show is just you know just try to uh we're all in this together you yeah, know yeah. and uh yeah for kyle who kyle, kyle's now at home depot so kyle you can come back anytime kyle <laughs> I'm, coming, I'm coming back bigger than better than ever. I, That's right, baby. Like I said on the, the Hustle is Real episode, changes in yourself, you'll find it, and you'll get it back, and it'll all be good. <laughs>